Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is this the real life or is this just a fictional reality? Hello there. Welcome to episode three of Fictional Reality. Uh, this week I had the pleasure of talking to a good friend of mine, old Maddie Hannibal Butler. And uh, we sat down for a beer on Anzac Day uh, a couple of weeks ago and we spoke about building fictional worlds. He's currently writing a science uh, fiction space opera novel. Um, so we talk about how to engage in that fictional world there and then we tangent on into narrative and story structure and historical narratives and how we create these fictional realities around historical events. Uh, specifically, we you know, touch a little bit on politics and a crazy episode of Black Mirror. The underdog tale comes up. Uh, the underdog tale being a narrative that is told to people to keep them in the system. And then Maddie offers some really sage advice for how to write your own fictional reality and uh, create your own tale. And by being aware of some of these narratives in society, we uh, we might be able to subvert them and find some happiness. So I hope you enjoy. Um, thank you for listening. And here is this week's episode. Welcome to episode three of uh, Fictional Reality. Today I have a uh, uh, future proclaimed novelist, uh, oh. <laughs> Matt. Uh, so Matt, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So... Uh, in this podcast world, I go by Old Maddie Hannibal Butler, and Old Maddie, as you know, is an aspiring novelist, and podcast legend, and <laughs> actor. Uh, I spend my days studying to be a, become a private investigator, uh, writing my novels, and generally being a reckless bohemian <laughs> in this reckless, glorious world. A rapscallion for all flavours. Exactly. The last swashbuckler is what I've been called by myself mainly. <laughs> yeah, right. Some, no, some, reminds me somewhat of Errol Flynn, if I may be so bold. Oh, oh man, I'm going to be reeling from that forever. <laughs> mm. So, uh, we, Matt and I have had some cool discussions about a story. We were just talking about it before we started recording. Mm. Celestial Seas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm super fascinated in it because it's like a sci-fi opera. Yeah. Would you call it? Yeah. Yeah. So I've never really considered myself much of a fantasy writer. Mm. And but at the same time, this is such like a whimsical kind of tall tale of a story, almost a fable. And that it's not really a science fiction in the way of like speculative fiction, like Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke and all that in mm. that. Like, say, George Orwell, he would take the world as he knew it and he would speculate on what it will become using science. Like, that mm. was a political science fiction book. Yeah, yeah. But Arthur C. Clarke, he would take current technology and he would speculate on what it will become in a certain amount of time. This isn't that. This right. is very much a fantasy space opera. You know, it's pirates yeah. on ships in yeah, the old-fashioned yeah. sense. It's an old-fashioned swashbuckler in space. <laughs> Great book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. So... 
this is um, it's world building mm-hmm. at its in its rawest form. Yes. How do you go about constructing a world, or as the term that we're using in this podcast, a fictional reality? Well, that's a very good question. Mm. So for me, coming in from a screenwriting background, as well as just like a love of character and theatre. I think characters are the center of any world, and you need to believe in the characters and have them be very real people that you can relate to. Mm. So when you see the world through their eyes, that world is real. Like there are yep. certain things in this in Celestial Seas, which, if you pitch them by yourself, by themselves, it's silly. Mm. Like it's very kind of almost childish and whimsical in a way. Like yeah. So at, earlier in the early in the novel, uh, the main character Barnabas Buckley. Uh, he kind of tell in his internal monologue he talks about stars and how he knows for a fact now because he sailed among them in this galleon for so long mm. that they're big balls of gas that are prone to supernovas and there's something to be admired, respected and feared much like the old time sea itself right, right but as a kid he admits that he used to see them as giant turtles just like this, the big kind of sparkling thing we we see is this, is their shell sparkling, and they just kind of gently kind of yep. s- uh, swim through space. Yeah. And then later on in the novel, he comes across a wounded star turtle. So <laughs> philosophically, and as a character, we know that he thinks this is nonsense, but then this actually happens for real. And even though this is whimsical and silly, because of the tone of the novel and the world that it's built, yeah. even if it's like a hallucination because he's been at sea, or at Celestial Sea, if I may, <laughs> for so long, it might be like an hallucination or a dream, mm. but it's real enough to him that we believe in that fictional reality. Interesting. So you set up a little bit of like a, a s- symbolic allegory of like, when he's a kid, he believes that they're turtles, he yeah. comes to know the... The, the world that we would inherit, yeah. that they're balls of flaming gas. Yeah. And then you sort of like turn that a little bit around. I do, yeah. And make make the and you've built the world in such a way that the audience is now like, okay, I've bought into the allegory. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm I'm invested in it uh, as sort of like a realist in some sense because he recognizes the scientific nature. Exactly. And then it's like, well, what is this yeah. third layer? Exactly. It's like, how can we choose to perceive our reality? I'm very interested in solipsism. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Well, and so you're, the gateway for this is through the eyes of the character. Yes. Yeah. So in episode two of this podcast, I was talking to um, John Catania, and he, he's a reviewer for Empire Magazine, and we were talking about sort of like in film and in story what makes something like how does the audience get into it Mm. we went on this big tangent about how the audience got into the story via only certain bits of information being leaked yes and so i'm interested i'm now interested like that your way into the story is through the eyes of the character is it a choice as you're writing the story about how much information the character is exposed to or absolutely so i very much agree with that like you only let a little bit of the world be portrayed and then it reveals and it implies a lot more mm. like Hemingway believed in the iceberg theory and I believe it in that too and that you imply a little so that the rest of it is congealed in the audience's imaginations through their own imagination and nothing makes a deeper impact than the implication that their imagination can fill in the gaps for but <laughs> one thing you have to remember when you're doing that yeah. is if you omit something and you don't know it that's a hole and the audience can tell but if you omit something and you do know what you're omitting mm. on purpose yeah. 
that is going to seal in their imagination because they know what you're implying because you know what you're implying. Yeah, right. So when, through the eyes of the character, Barnabas sees little parts of how the world works, and it's just, you know, it's just run-of-the-mill for him because that's his world, that's how it works. Mm. He doesn't have to explain it all. But just by seeing that little bit, mm. you kind of get an idea of what the rest of this world is through fleshing it out, through yeah. what he sees in this little bit, because that implies the rest of it. Uh, a good example of that is he rigs up um, the sail, which is a holographic kind of sheet that captures starlight, and that's how the ship kind of push through, pushes through space. Right. He's not going to explain the science of the light sail. He's just going to unfurl it. You're going to see the light sail flare up as it catches a certain star's light, mm-hmm. and the ship's going to propel forward. Right. And just through that, you will understand this is how this kind of world's developed. It's well, it's developed old-fashioned ideas of sailing, mm. and it's put that into a space context. Right. It's just little things like that. And that's got enough... Um, yeah. There's enough sort of like of cultural knowledge of going, okay, yeah, it's some sort of solar-powered panel thing. Like, yeah. We know about solar panels, so we just like put those concepts onto this. Yeah. And, and the imagination sort of fills in the rest, which, funnily enough, is exactly the point that John and I got to as well mm. in saying that the actual enjoyment that the, that the reader or the audience member experiences is when their imagination links or fills in those gaps there. Absolutely. And that's... It's interesting I'm getting this this thought and feeling of like, well, what we really enjoy in a movie is being given these crumbs or being given two portions of a meal, and then we create the story in the gaps there. Yeah. And it's as we create that imaginative experience that we're going, oh, this is really good. Yeah. And the author is just feeding little bits here and there. This is the world. These are some themes. Yeah. Like, the author's only giving us one story, mm. but through building... Just not even building, just implying this larger world. Yeah, he's giving us. We're, we're he's not even giving it to us. We're creating a million other stories right. from that. A great example of this is Star Wars: A New Hope, the original. George Lucas's world in that is not very complex. Right. But just think of the, the phenomenon it became and what people kind of implied mm. from all of the little breadcrumbs he get gets. A great example of this is Boba Fett. In the movies, Boba Fett does very, very little. Yeah, he shows up a few times and helps yeah. hence, and that's about it. Yeah, he's like, he, he doesn't even capture Han Solo. Darth Vader does. He's just there to pick him up. Yeah, right. <laughs> but he looks cool. Yeah. And from right. that, before this new TV series, The Mandalorian's coming out, we've already built this massive like pantheon of mm. adventures just for Boba Fett, just for this character who looks cool. Yeah. Because we've just we were just told on like in pure exposition, mm. this is the greatest bounty hunter in the galaxy. Right. And it's like, alright, what does this bounty hunter do? We think he looks cool, we filled in the gaps ourselves. Like yep. for me, he's the man with no name from like the the Dulles trilogy with Clint Eastwood, yeah, just in yeah. a space setting. Yeah, and to right. me and so when I look at Boba Fett, I see this one this cowboy with no name, this like one man army bounty hunter. Mm. And I think he's the bee's knees. Yeah, right. And it's like, yeah. where does he live? What planet does he live on? Exactly. You know, who are his family? Yeah. And, you know, it's like these sort of tantalizing little bits that were given by a world or something like that. Um, mm. They, they, like, fan fiction is a good example of how they can just inspire imagination. Yeah. And people are like, well, you've given me this tiny world. I've finished the first book. And I just want to be in it more, so I'm going to create all of this extra stuff. Absolutely. Like, yeah. um, Celestial Seas, even. It's like, 
I'm very passionate about it because spa- old-fashioned space pirates. Errol Flynn's one of my favorite kind of movie stars from the old days and everything. Yeah. And but it's already. I was very aware when I started out that the idea has already been done. It was done in uh, Disney's Treasure Planet. Right. It's just an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island in a space setting mm. with all the old-timey galleons flying through space, and it's glorious. But not only did that film bomb. But no one really followed it up with anything similar ever since. Yeah, like, you look right. up Space Pirates and you get Han Solo, you get a Doctor Who episode in which a pirate from like the old days Doctor Who puts into space. Mm, and it's like, yeah, right. I wanted more honest-to-goodness, old-timey Space Pirates. So I'm <laughs> writing it myself. Fill <laughs> <laughs> the niche. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And going back to seeing, building a world through a character's eyes, yeah. we have to come up with... Because Darth Vader's the one, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Dear listeners. Dear listeners, but I think Darth Vader's the one who mentions that Boba Fett's the best bounty hunter in the galaxy. Right. Oh, well, that's where that bit of exposition yeah, comes in. I think that's who says it. Someone says it yeah, yeah. explicitly that he's the best bounty hunter in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. What if Boba Fett was just Darth Vader's drinking buddy, and it was just like a little bit of friendly support, like, you're the best buddy. We built an entire kind of series of stories <laughs> off this one guy's probably biased opinion <laughs> Boba Fett's yeah. just always fumbling his gun and yeah. it's like look at that man doesn't even need to have grace and he's the best <laughs> he's just playing with his victim he's like shit <laughs> I can't load it it's always empty yeah. yeah so in a way all of these adventures we've concocted for Boba Fett at, mm. off the side out of the main movies that could just be you know Darth Vader's little personal diary fanboying over Boba Fett like they might not that's just Darth Vader's reality it might not even be the objective reality of Star Wars if there is such thing as objective reality in fictional reality yeah. well yeah, yeah yeah that's right from the solipsistic standpoint yeah they're the same mm-hmm. uh-huh. um that makes me well actually I was having a, a discussion about like uh, how the crowd chooses when we create these um, fan fictions and we expand, expand on worlds and in the first episode we talked about 40k uh, Warhammer 40k and yes. now it's this huge are you familiar with it at all? I haven't played it myself but I've seen a lot of kind of content for it because yeah. it's so cool <laughs> yeah and so vast yeah. and anyone can contribute to it mm. and uh, my my housemate was asking me like well who chooses what what gets in and what doesn't and I'm saying well it's crowd control basically it's like the cream rises to the top mm. and if you create a, a piece of um, fan fiction or a piece of content for the Warhammer 40k world or for the Star Wars world you release it and it sort of fits in it mm. doesn't buck of the, any of the other laws or rules and doesn't create these weird that you know uncannon timelines yeah uh, then you know it sort of might rise to the top and so <laughs> I'd be interested to see how successful a uh, bumbling Boba Fett <laughs> would be it's like based on that argument it's yeah. like well we, we can't disagree that it's only one biased source commenting on Boba Fett's greatness but He's goddamn great. <laughs> if you sully his name, fuck you. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> it's like um, any kind of revisionist history mm. kind of standpoint. Like, uh, another piece of fiction I'm writing, shameless self-plugging here, because no one else is. Uh, uh, <laughs> My right. three listeners will, uh, yeah. will yeah. spread the word. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like this guy. Yeah. Oh, they might. Uh, so today is a sacred day. It's Anzac Day. Yeah. And... Uh, I've written a radio play about uh, Gallipoli. It's about this bumbling soldier who goes to the front line of Gallipoli, and it's based on the way I've kind of formatted the battle. It's based on revisionist history. 
mm. like kind of proffering the idea that we are uh, Australians specifically, the, the Anzacs, we weren't massacred on the beach when we landed at Gallipoli. We didn't land on the wrong beach as is common kind of popular mythos. We landed on the right beach and thanks to a particular general kind of going by his own gut, we landed by night and we only had one dead body on the beach when we landed. And it was only because we didn't have clear enough orders on the second ridge to take the third ridge that we all got scattered and then we got entrenched and then we were stuck in those two ridges for eight months. Right. So it wasn't okay. this like kind of opening bloodbath and this tragic kind of misconception of strategies and bumbling mm. that got us killed. It was just frankly not clear enough orders and hesitation and doubt that Interesting. Lost, that lost the battle for us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very interested to see how this radio play kind of turns out, considering that I'm, I'm approaching it, I'm Gallipoli from this borderline sacrilegious standpoint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, that's very interesting yeah. when, well, <coughs> historiography mm. Is, mm. is like a fascinating field because it's like, well, we have history. Yeah. It's like the amount of history that we have is infinite information. You know, it's, it's someone's perspective. Yeah. And that old saying holds true that um, history is told by the victors sort of thing. Yes. And who tells the right tale? <laughs> like, how do we discern fictional history mm -hmm. from true history and like obviously the narrative structure is going to benefit like when you read a history book you're still reading a book you it's, are you need to be engaged in a narrative so mm -hmm. the historian realizes that they have to tell a story and it has to have an arc in some way absolutely yeah and so an, an embellishment here an embellishment here a little you know something here that just makes the whole thing fit together and work well is going to be really good for the history book reach and like you know, arguably sales but it's yeah. not about sales it's about creating a history that people want to read yeah it's about impact yeah and then where do you draw that line between well this is what really happened uh human beings are not perfect and they fucked up a lot yeah bad shit happened cool stuff happened and that's the end. Well, that's not very compelling. Yeah. What's more compelling? You know, like, we underdog got, tale. Yeah, we got this. We got this lowly private who becomes a general, and he rises to the top, and mm. he turned the tide of battle. And it's, it's all about this guy's journey or this woman's journey. Like, it's extremely interesting, and it's almost worrying in that mm. reality itself could be a fictional reality because history could all be. It's all exaggerated and distorted, and we yeah. haven't. And but we base our societies off history and tales of old. Like history yeah. repeats itself. We base our moral decisions and our traditions yeah. on what we've been told today. Yeah, and in a way, by doing that, if history is indeed exaggerated and distorted, and if I may, fictional reality. Thank you. Our modern world is a fictional reality unfolding itself. <laughs> Precisely, Maddie. Bam! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nothing is real. <laughs> um, yeah, everything is a narrative. Like, everything is a narrative. And, I mean, a lot of us experience this. I grew up in a Catholic, like, Catholic um, school. I was yeah. taken to Catholic school. My parents were quite secular. Yes. Um, so, there was always, it was always sort of taken with a grain of salt. And we were told these stories. Mm -hmm. How do you tell a a six-year-old, a six to ten-year-old child, the story of Jesus. Well, you embellish it. You you talk about literal miracles and and all of this stuff. Um, that that didn't quite hold for me and a bunch of my friends and heaps of people I know who are my age now. Yeah. Like, we never believed this like 
miracle bullshit. And so we we get fed a fictional reality yeah. about you know the scriptures and Jesus. We reject them when we find out oh what that like that's sort of bullshit. And it can be pretty destabilizing actually into your adult life when it you sort be. of go well. I was told this was the truth that you know this religious figure or even this political figure or this celebrity did these things and this happened this way and information comes out later that that wasn't the case and all of a sudden we can't believe anything. Yeah. So a question is if everything is a story and to for a story to be successful it has to be embellished with you know falsehood. Yes. How do we how do we believe things? What is that trick there that gets us to believe in something? I think going back to, if I may, how I tell stories through a character's eyes and everything, yeah, is I get you to like. I hope you like my protagonist. So the ah. way you believe it is you attach to characters that you personally relate to mm-hmm. and you like. Mm. So you want to believe their reality. Yeah, or, right. So. If I if I can be blunt, Errol, Errol Flynn was not a good person. <laughs> he was not a good man. Right. But I've read all. I've read his autobiography. I've I've very much dissected and kind of indulged in his life and how he lived because I liked his attitude to living. So right. and he, by his own admission, is prone to exaggerating his stories. So a lot of the stories that I kind of associate with Errol Flynn aren't exactly true. But I want them to be true, mm. and I think that's where the kind of how we believe comes in is we decide what we want to believe, yeah, and it can be dangerous right. in that way. Yeah, and I think it it's only really safe when we do a lot of self reflection and we understand how we want to contribute to this world in a positive way, mm. and that we can then we can attach to characters who align with those beliefs and those convictions. Yeah, and right. we can build a positive reality. That we can believe in. <laughs> yeah, even if it is fictional. Exactly, because there are aspects of Errol Flynn that I don't like. There are yeah. things he did that I don't agree with. Mm. But I just don't focus on them. I believe they happened. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That's not that's not my image of Errol Flynn that I hold true that forms my reality and my attitude as a swashbuckler. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Re- Errol Flynn represents an ideal yeah. and he embodies some of or most of those characteristics but not all of them exactly yeah yeah well everything you were saying just makes me think about how and uh, this is a bit of a rabbit hole but how politicians do the same thing yes and that a big part of especially in australian politics um the sort of underdog and the battler and the the bloke you can sit next to at a bar with is a very powerful political image because it helps us relate personally to the people who are elected Absolutely. Election time comes around and all of a sudden these politicians are, you know, eating sausages and bread, eating onions, having beers and kissing babies. And it's all just a story that is told to us so that we can get on board emotionally. Absolutely. Exactly. Ah. It's like um, Anzac Day as a cel- as like a ceremony and celebration was actually done to get recruits yeah, right. Exactly. It's propaganda. It, was, it, was pro- it was a propaganda piece uh, because, you know, we were getting massacred. No one wanted to join the war anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, the reason they built this kind of like this mythos of, oh, the British sent us to the wrong beach. So we got we got our ass handed to us through no fault of our own. Shows us as this like kind of underdog, yep. gritty battler who 
went against the odds no matter what because we're brave and yeah. we were the victims of the stuffy um like aristocracy yeah, and we're yeah. the working class hero and it all contributed to that mythos and of course we got more people signing up for the war yeah the underdog tale is exactly. a very powerful archetype exactly that gets it's funny the, the tale is if you work hard you will succeed yeah and the reality is that believing in that if you work hard you will succeed which i do because i'm raised in a middle to lower class situation so while i do believe that i can also see that that gets a lot of people working hard yeah you know, it's a very effective method mm-hmm. of getting people into the society signing up for war going and doing laboring jobs yeah, signing up for uni so we can become busy little bees in the high rungs of the of the hive yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and it, it's an interesting thing because i see myself it's like well i i do like i just like everyone else want to embody that underdog tale yeah but I am just a percentage like I'm just a statistic in the in the wider reach of things yet if I believe in the underdog tale until I die then man have I given a lot of myself to uh to industry to you know to everything else around me mm. without ever having to necessarily succeed exactly Because it's sort of like well the underdog's also quite humble yeah you know and doesn't get down when uh when the all their hard work doesn't pay off they just work harder absolutely and that's the, and I, yeah and that's the beauty and danger of fictional reality and what we see is that we buy into narratives yeah and those narratives have you know as much as they pay off they also to- take a toll <laughs> <laughs> that's so, right that's right so that's why in fiction when i'm writing i'm always very conscious of what this narrative is saying and yeah. when I, in life when i'm looking at my own personal narrative and how i see myself because i also see myself as kind of a man against the world underdog yeah rising against the odds it's always important to look at your own narrative and why you see it that way yeah. and where that narrative is heading yeah, yeah right and we weren't born with the narrative so where does it come from exactly yeah yeah which can be very enlightening i i felt that very clearly when i was like I saw it, there was an episode of Black Mirror that was um it was the one where they're on the the bicycles. Have um, you seen I haven't watched much of Black Mirror, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> the long and short of it was um it starts off with these people they're on these bicycles and they're they're earning points. Mm-hmm. And when they get enough points they can go on to this American Idol type show. And then on that show they might be chosen and if they get chosen they go and live a better life. Yeah. So that's the the ascent the essence of the underdog tale. Absolutely. Just work hard on that fucking bike until you can break through. It's the essence of capitalism as well, really. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then the the sort of flip on the story is that this is all feeding into the same thing and what they're pedaling on the bikes to do is to power the lights for the show. And if you break through, you just enter another realm of pedaling on the bike. And um ultimately the only way to get out of it is just to go well i'm one of the few that broke through everyone else is pow- like i'm not working but everyone else's pedaling power is power in my life and so yeah. it's very sort of like existentially nihilistic yeah um but it showed me it was like oh the underdog is just another chess piece in in the game another gear in the Absolutely. machine and do i and i found myself asking this question of like if i but i had no other choice if i'm not the underdog then what role do i play mm-hmm. and i was like i just have to play the role of the underdog yeah and i either break through or i don't but the other option is to give up which is not i i i've never been told to give up narrative so yeah. I, so i can't 
Mm. And uh, it was this weird thing of like, this is fucked. Yeah. But also, I don't have any other choice, so I might as well try and be an exemplar of the underdog tale. Uh, and I don't know what that looks like, but to be a good underdog that doesn't... I'm going to perpetuate the system no matter what I do, but I don't know, some self-awareness about the system itself. Mm. Yes and no. <laughs> so, like, at the end of that, when they become... When they rise... When they break through in that episode and they're at the new pedal and they're saying, oh, at least I got this far kind of thing and, you know, I'm not where I was kind of thing. Mm. What they're doing is they're changing their narrative and how they saw themselves to console yeah. themselves. And... Again, yeah, to make them still feel like the underdog, so at least, you know, it's not all bad. Mm. And while I totally get the underdog kind of narrative, and I very much, you know, buy into it myself, I don't think it's the only option. Like, I don't think we have to feel like we're constantly a single boat going against the tide. Yeah, right. Because it comes down to what is success. Like, is... Yeah, yeah. Is... Reframing. Exactly. Like, if we only view success as breaking through to the next level, then yes, we're always going to be underdogs. But if we view success as, you know, being happy or fully embodying ourselves in a confident and enriching manner that supports people around us... Yeah. Then, are we still underdogs? No, we're a leader. We're a person for the people, even. You know, yeah, I yeah. mean, I guess that's still an underdog leader, but... <laughs> No, you know, it, I'm not saying it's an easy narrative to break out of, but I think... <laughs> it's not a conventional narrative. Exa exactly. I don't think... Yeah. I think underdog... The underdog narrative is what, if I may be an anarchist for, and communist for a moment, that's what capitalism wants us to think with, where, is our only option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we always, you know, keep working at our best trying to break through and fueling the system. Mm. I mean, realistically, we, unless you want to go live in the woods, we're always going to feed the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... We can do it on our own terms, I feel. Yeah, right. And, and we, without having to feel like we're chasing something. Exactly. Our own yeah. tail, per se. Exactly. As the we, underdog. Yeah, we don't have to be an ass chasing the carrot or our own tail. Yeah. We just can be ourselves on our own terms mm. that happen to live in a certain place at a certain time. Well, that's that's interesting yeah. because I, I saw an example of this in a place I never thought I would. And that was when I was traveling through the States and I met some homeless people. Because, mm. um, like, as a tourist, you're essentially homeless. And there were a few times when I was, like, rubbing shoulders with these guys. And uh, I would talk to them. And I had this paradigm shift where I realized... Because, you know, in in the system I've been raised in, it's always like, well, these people should get jobs. And yeah. they should save some of the money they're always given. But you meet them and you realize they have, they have refused that system. And I met some people who were homeless but were like... Hey, look! I'm make. I'm alive. I can get by. I go out, ask for money for two hours a day. I get enough to stay alive. I'm living my life how I want to yeah. on my terms. And these people were happy. Like, yeah. And not ev obviously not everyone who's homeless is happy, but the they just showed me like, oh my god, yeah. The there's you can you can refuse that grind. Yeah. And no matter what your circumstance, you can sort of go, well, fuck it. Uh, I'm just going to be what I am and make the most of what I've got. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic in a way because one of the core lessons we get, core narratives, if I may, <laughs> we get told through like fiction as kids is be yourself, you know, just mm. express yourself, be, be yourself. Yeah. But then in those same movies, 
the protagonist, you know, learns to be themselves confidently, and then they achieve material success. Yeah. So we're told to be ourselves, but within their system, you know. Yeah, you right. Know, still work hard. Still achieve results for you know, <laughs> you know the big the big wigs in the corporations. <laughs> Disney. <laughs> he said it. He said it. We're going to Anzacs. We're going to Disney. <laughs> I'm throwing punches. This is going to be a big controversy episode and get all the buzz feeds. <laughs> but um. We don't have to fuel that system. We don't have to fill their narrative. We can be ourselves and write our own narrative. And it doesn't have to have that linear strict structure that exponentially grows until we're a CEO. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we might wrap it up after this, but that it's like the story arc structure, the thing that puts us into a story and makes us want to learn is we see the character at an undeveloped state they go through a turmoil and then they grow. Yeah. A story where a character doesn't grow, we have no interest in. So every story that we have an interest in is, is reflecting back at us, you must grow, you must change, you must do something with your life. Yeah. And so of course we're going to adopt that narrative, right? And mm-hmm. go, well, I'm, according to all the stories I listen to, I'm a piece of shit that needs to go through some more shit to become a better person. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, society and industry comes in and goes, oh, what's that thing you want to do? Well, maybe a job will help you do that, kid. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, I guess the takeaway for me from this enlightening little conversation yeah. is, uh, well, we can actually choose the narrative where we are already at the place we need to be. And instead of thinking, I need to be better, therefore I'm worse than what I could be, it's like, no, I'm already the best I can be. What else can I do? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, we don't have to build our narrative without. We can build it within. We can find out why we say certain things, why we think that certain things about ourselves. Mm. And ultimately, what we as people now, in our narrative internally, what do we want to do? <laughs> what, yeah. Like, how do we want to interact with people? How do we want them... How do we want to make other people feel when we're around. Yeah, right. Thing. And ultimately, it comes down to our narrative inside is who we are and who we want to be and why and how, right now, they can be one and the same without <laughs> any kind of external freaking dragon flying, yeah, <laughs> flying down right. and for us to slay it and to symbolize our growth. We don't need a dragon. Yeah. We have ourselves. Be your own dragon. <laughs> That's awesome. We might leave it there. And yeah. uh, thank you very much, Matty. Uh, thank you very much for having me. That was awesome. We'll have to have you on again sometime. And thank you to our lovely listeners. Um, we'll catch you on the flip. Very well. Farewell. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of Fictional Reality, please consider subscribing uh, and liking. We would really appreciate it over here. Next week, we'll be talking to Kezia from Seraphim Escape Rooms. We'll be talking about all things puzzles and immersive environments in escape room worlds. So uh, hit that good old-fashioned subscribe button to stay updated with that. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.